Hello and welcome to First Interview Club, a show within a show where we talk to some of our favorite creators in the comic book industry. On this episode, we'll be talking to the author of such series as Fade Out, Criminal, and Pulp. He's joining us today to talk about his new book, Where the Body Was, which will be available to purchase in January. I'm, of course, talking about the legend, Ed Brubaker, the king of comic noir comic books, and hopefully, by the end of this interview, a friend of the show. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so we got to read Where the Body Was before um, it is released, and um, again, a stellar entry into the Ed Brubaker catalog of books. Oh, um, it, it, it's a story about love and lies, and uh, oddly enough, the TV show The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, before we get started, can you kind of tell us how this idea kind of came to you? Yeah. Um, just one quick correction. The the book is because we image switched to new distribution. The book yeah. is actually it's strange. It comes out in comic stores in mid December and then in early January in bookstores. Okay, so perfect. Like a little so comic stores get like a two or three week jump on the bookstore market. I think for this one. All right, just Great. in time for Christmas. Perfect. Yeah, they're our, they're our biggest customer anyway. The comic stores. Um, the uh, the book came. I was finishing up Night Fever, the last book that Sean and I did that came out a few months ago, um, and I. I think I just I had read the new um, Tom Parada book, the guy who did Election, and he did a sequel to Election called Tracy Flick Can't Lose. And I was reading that and it just reminded me that I'd always intended to do a crime story told from a bunch of different points of view at the same time, kind of like like the old uh, 90s movie, like Shortcuts or, mm-hmm. you know, like it. It was just like, I always liked that format when I would see stories done that way in film or comics or, you know, novels where it would, you know, like Game of Thrones, like the books are like every right. chapter is a different narrator. And I kind of experimented around with stuff like that in the fade out a little bit, but I really wanted to do one where it was like a bunch of different people all on in the same location where their stories are kind of overlapping. So you see bits and pieces of their stories in each other's stories kind of. And, yeah. and I'd always really been obsessed with, um, as a kid, my dad used to collect these uh, Dell mapback books, these paperback uh, crime novels from the thirties and forties. Mm-hmm. And they all have like maps of the crime scene on the back cover. And so I just wanted to kind of do something like that. And when Sean and I started doing, um, the hardback books, we have end papers. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be neat if the end papers was like a double page spread of like a map of a neighborhood and yeah. that's where the story takes place. And so it started from there. And then it was like, I had two or three ideas that I had little bits and pieces of that I'd been noodling with for years that never really kind of came all the way together. And I just suddenly, it hit me that if I had them all take place around each other on this same street that that might end up being kind of like this weird tapestry of, you know, people all in the same place at different places in their lives. You know, like one of them's a little girl, one of them's like, you know, a junkie teenager, you know, it's like there's people at all different ages in this story at all different, you know, it's like in some ways you can get, the the whole history of of what it feels like to love as a human being and that in that book is my hope it's like from the time of like your first childhood crush on the guy who lives down the street to right. 
you know, being in an old age home, wondering about that person who broke your heart when you were 50. (laughs) You, and it's funny because uh, in the after uh, words or the, the afterthoughts of the book, you kind of mentioned how it was fun for you to just kind of wrangle all those characters like in different notebooks. And I, I just kind of imagine you with a big Bolton board with thumbtacks and just like, okay, this person's here at this time. And was it kind of like that or was it? Yeah, it was actually. Yeah. I got, um, I, I started by trying to design the map and then I was having trouble doing it. So I got my wife, who's an artist to like help design, like what the street would look like. I kind of was describing it when we were looking at photos and maps and trying to sort of build one. And then she made one at like a hand-drawn one and we sent it to Sean. And then he, uh, sent, he like found someone, I think through Instagram or someone like just some fan of his, who's like a architecture, uh, like art, person who took Mm -hmm. that and basically redesigned it into like a 3d model of a neighborhood so sean was able to use that while he was drawing so that's why all the houses are in the exact right spot everywhere like it would like all the pencils have all this architectural like blue lines and all over them it's fucking crazy (laughs) Um, that's amazing how cool but yeah it was it's funny because like the whole the whole story i had an idea for a story about a guy um who has a police badge. Um, Mm -hmm. and I had a story, I had a thing happen when I was young. My, my mom's third husband, um, was a therapist, a psychiatrist. And the guy who shared an office with him was arrested for trying to frame one of his patients for, to like trying to, he was trying to hire one of, he was trying to like get one of his patients to murder his wife, basically. So you're going to draw on some from some real world experiences here. I didn't get all the details of that story, and I certainly changed a lot of it. But there was definitely some aspects of, you know, being around a couple of crimes that I that I wanted to try to figure out a way to put into a story. And I'd been sitting on them for, you know, one of them. I mean, that that happened like 30 years ago. Like, yeah, it was just like one of those things where I was like, someday I'm going to put that in a story. And I finally found (laughs) a way to do it. Yeah, but it's funny because I really thought that the book would end up being like much more of like this gritty little thriller. And then as I was writing it, like Sean had always asked for a romance comic. And the closest I ever got was My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies, which is really a crime story (laughs) (laughs) about drug addiction. (laughs) But um, but this one, I really feel like like about you know, 20 or 30 pages in, I was like, Oh, I think this is the romance one, actually. I mean, of course, it's a crime story, too. And it's, it's, you know, there is some sweetness to the story that you don't really anticipate with 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 kind of how the the events start to unfold. But there's a little bit of bitter sweetness, like it's some dark, like it's like dark chocolate. And you're like, this is kind of endearing as as I'm reading this. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like our attempt was to make a book where like the object itself sort of makes it a thing that you kind of want to see all the different people's stories and you keep, you can flip to the, like, if you have the hardback book, like, like you can flip right to the end paper to get right. the, you know, to look at the map as you're turning pages. It's like, Oh, you'll always get to sort of remind yourself where they are. And, yeah. you know, and it's like, Oh, it's, it's funny too, because like for months I couldn't figure out a, a good name for the book. We Sean was like halfway through drawing it. And, I still didn't have a name for it. And I was looking at the map one day and I just saw the last listing on the map says where the body was. And I was uh-huh. like, oh God, it's been there the whole time. <laughs> like, what a perfect name for a book. <laughs> where the body was. And it, and it sort of is evocative of like the, because 
like I said, I feel like, you know, you see some of these characters go from young to like, you know, death mm -hmm. in the in the course of this book, like live their whole lives in right. you know, 150 pages. And like, I, 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 I wanted to ask of, about that. Yeah, I was kind of looking for something like that with the title, like that would imply like, you know, something that was like, because where the body was sort of, if you think about it, it doesn't just mean where like a dead body was lying on the street. Mm -hmm. It's like, where have we all been in our whole lives? Like you look yeah. up one day and you're like, oh yeah, 20 years just passed. Yeah. <laughs> there is this, this, this unique narrative style to it of just like, there's flashbacks and, and flash forwards. And it's almost kind of like we're watching a documentary about these events. Uh, when you started, when you started to write this book, was that intentional or did it kind of just like organically just kind of come up, come about from writing it? No, I knew I wanted to do a lot of like breaking of the fourth wall. And <laughs> it was funny because I was telling a friend about it and they were like, oh, kind of like a true crime podcast. And I was like, oh, well, I wasn't thinking that at the time. But yeah, I was thinking yeah. more like, uh, like, I don't know, like Dan Klaus or Chris Ware sometimes just have people walking on the street talking to you in their comics or like Harvey P. Yeah. Or like, it's just like a, you know, even like peanuts charlie brown's like walking along just like talking to you and i just wanted to sort of really play with everything that i could do in comics and it's like sean and i have been doing books together for over 20 years now and i feel like anytime we're not doing something to try to like play with the storytelling or push the envelope on what you can do with the language of comics then i feel like mm -hmm. maybe we're just coasting you know, like she's like, like, like always challenging yourself. Like, I don't want to be predictable. We got to do something yeah. totally wacky. I mean, kind of like when I told Sean, I was like, I think this one's basically going to be like a bunch of short stories that all take place on the same street that kind of overlap each other, and there'll be a map. And he's like, a map. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I just I feel like if we don't try to just keep swerving left or right, then you know we're just you know we're just going to coast or something. Like, yeah. I never want to. I always want to try and really do the thing that feels like the most vital right at that moment. And, you know, at the moment that I sat down to start writing, like I filled up a whole notebook with about all these different characters. And oh, know, shit. like some of them are based on real people, but all mm -hmm. of them have like a, a bit of a piece of me and, you know, my life in them too. And, you know, I had had like a year where a lot of stuff had happened in my life that made me sort of look around at what, you know, at like the world we were living in and, and, you know, how much time had sort of passed while we were all sitting around in the pandemic and, right. and just kind of realizing that like, as you get older, like the things that you care about in life totally change and the way that you look back at like your, like your heartbreak at 18 feels completely different at 55. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, at 55, you're kind of like, you can go through your thirties and forties still being upset about it. And then suddenly you get into your fifties and you're like, what a schmuck. <laughs> you were lucky to have what you had, dude. Exactly. Like, Enjoy the heartbreak. It made you better. Yeah, it's weird. It's like how like I obsessively collect books for my whole life and now I'm like trying to get rid of books because I'm just like, I don't need all these books around constantly. And it's like every time I get rid of any, I bring in twice as many. Yeah, you bring in more. <laughs> you're just making really a new crop. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it's like. I need to set I need to clear off a shelf. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like as you get older and as a writer, you know, you're always kind of writing about your life and what, what life is like, you know, yeah. and, and I noticed that as I was getting older and as, especially into my fifties, like there were certain things that used to bother me a lot that don't bother me as much and other things that bother me way more. And, but I noticed like 
you know, I, I'm a writer, so I'm obviously like a big navel gazer who looks back at the past all the time because I'm like thinking about it and writing stories. Mm-hmm. But I really did feel like at some point in life, you go through like a change where you sort of feel differently about a lot of different stuff. And I'd never really written anything about that. And I thought if I do this thing that has, you know, like a dozen main characters, they can all be at like different points in life. And you can yeah. sort of show how someone went from being like a 17 year old kid to, you know, a 57 year old man who has a completely different take on love. Yeah. It, 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 and it's great because you get that from the characters, you get that first person point of view from them directly of just like <laughs> then them reflecting on their past self yeah. from the story. And so it's like it's just a, it's a unique and, and, and different style of storytelling that. Um, yeah, it definitely. It's definitely a little bit of a mind bender. At some point, I had to just stop trying to make it like have a rule because I was like, yeah. well, he's driving down. He's riding his scooter down the street talking to us. <laughs> he's still 18 and then you turn the page and he's 57 and he's talking about something yeah. else and you're like oh, i was shit. expecting to see like a camera crew mid comic yeah. i was like where's he going with this this is wild yeah. no it's really it's one of those things that it's like uniquely a comic book thing i think is like and that uh, is 100 percent. yeah yeah because it goes back and forth between like a third person narration mm-hmm. and, and everybody then telling their sort of first person stories and some of them interrupting each other to say hey that's not how it happened come on yeah like, I just, you know, so like that that was just so much fun to to try and do but also like a, a real brain breaker for putting the book together like figuring out whose stories went in what order and there was one point where i was like i'm just going to write all the different chapters and just throw them in the air and then that's the order that they yeah. go in and, and what, what order they land in when they fall work. that's how i'm telling it yeah exactly but it's like no they need to be in this very specific order <laughs> it's, but um, um but, but i, I do want to say uh the you do mention the descendants in there which is maybe one of my top five punk bands of all time oh yeah and uh when whenever that scene comes up i'm just like oh man ed's one of one of us he he enjoys that the socal punk scene oh yeah yeah no that was a yeah i remember they in fact that summer of 84 they had just gotten back together because milo was back in college i think so they were like yep. 20 again that summer like i remember uh, all my friends going up to orange county to see that show and i didn't go oh, <laughs> Walmer. oh man where you go to get murdered oh. <laughs> I, I i've seen you know footage of of descendant shows on youtube and like those shows just get out of oh, control yeah. Yeah, like Cuckoo's Lounge stuff, like in the, mm-hmm. like where they invented slam dancing, supposedly. And it's like, yeah. they, also <laughs> the legend goes. <laughs> they also invented like fighting with like dirt heads in the parking lot outside. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I'm pretty sure that's been the human condition forever. Yeah, <laughs> to, to fighting after any punk show is just kind of yeah. like the sign that, of a good that show. It was really interesting down in Orange County. It was like right next to, uh, it was right next to like a country bar. So it was like there'd be like, oh, perfect. The parking lot was like what divided them. So yeah, it was like yeah. <laughs> it's like the Hatfield McCoy. It's just like whenever a show got yeah. out. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so with um, with a lot of these books have been inspired by like uh, pulp crime, like dime novels of of like the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Why do you think that those genres translate into? comic books so well is is it like the self-contained story or is it just like the 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 
the the uh, really entrenched character. I mean, like every crime novel that or, or crime story that's been put in the comic books has been so perfect for the medium. Well, yeah, I think you know, in the fifties, there was this brief period of time in like the late forties, early fifties, where crime comics were huge, like romance comics and crime comics mm-hmm. and horror comics were really big and superhero comics had kind of died. And like when I was a little kid, my dad had gotten like a ton of comics. And so like I was reading like old EC crime suspense stories and stuff. Yeah, yeah. At the same time I was discovering like Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. So in my mind, I always thought that they were kind of, you know, the same, like, you know, or like Archie, like anything that really has that kind of strong graphic element to it. And like crime stories, you know, they, they're just, I don't know, there's something really human about it. Like we can all kind of relate to the characters that are in it when, and we're watching them, you know, cross lines that we're afraid to cross in real life, you know, that you always wonder, mm-hmm. like, I could just walk behind there and grab that thing and walk out of here, you know, and in the story <laughs> you can do it. But, yeah. but also I think crime stories have, you know, uh, similar graphic elements to like sci-fi and superhero stuff. There's a lot of, like sort of the pathos of the characters and what they're going through. It's just like you have a car chase or a gunfight instead of, you know, people blasting, you know, lasers each other or whatever. (laughs) I I think it's the, it's the real human connection of it. Cause like one of my favorite uh, comics ever, like his crime suspense stories, the the ones that Johnny Craig wrote and drew himself. He was like a sort of a guy who grew up studying Eisner um, oh, okay. He was one of the few guys from EC that didn't survive after the comics code because he really couldn't do, you know, superhero stuff at all or kids yeah. stuff. He just kind of he went into advertising art. But he's a big influence on guys like Neil Adams or Jim Aparo who drew Batman in the seventies. Oh, right on. Eighties. Um, but yeah, he's he's really just like he did these like six to eight page long little noir gems like. A story about a guy and, and a guy who's unhappily married running into his high school girlfriend who's unhappily married and they make a plan to kill off each other's spouses and run off together and cover up the crime by each pretending to be the other person's uh, spouse that they're just on vacation with. And then they slowly become these people that they were trying to get away from that they uh-huh. hated. And it's just like, but he does it in like eight pages and yeah. makes you just like you're watching the horror of this woman sort of gain weight for these photos and cut her hair different. And uh-huh. it's gonna, it gives you like a real Hitchcock kind of vibe, you know, and it's just like an eight page story. But yeah. I just, I, I grew up reading that stuff and like watching old noir films. So to me, when I start writing these stories, like, like where the body was, there's definitely like a lot of crime elements in it and everything. But the plot is, I mean, all over the place. <laughs> like it really just if yeah you took the crime out of it it would just be a story about a bunch of people fucking up <laughs> and fucking and that's kind of why i love it so much it's just like a group of average people just really continuing to just fuck up more and more and then like it just gets so entangled with one another it's like well how are they gonna you know untangle this mess and then you, you, we get yeah. the ending which i won't spoil but it's just like, yeah, spoil it. yeah. <laughs> but it's just like it is a wild like average everyday people just like thrusting themselves into chaos honestly well that's what i think that's what noir or crime you know 
is at its best is like that, you know, I mean, one of my favorite movies is Double Indemnity, which is just like an insurance salesman who just meets a woman one day. And it's just like, it's just been too long since he's felt any kind of passion in his life. And here's right. this crazy moment. And it's like, I feel like everybody has those moments in life, you know, like peaks and valleys of the world. And you're just kind of like, you know, everyone's desperate for like love and affection, even if they've got it in their life, it's not the right kind. And they want it from someone else or they want it from everybody or, you know, yeah, like that's I, I knew I, a friend in high school who like anytime anyone dated a girl, he had to go out with her. Like if you liked a girl, he had to go out with her first. It was like, it was like a compulsion or something. A point of pride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And people are just, and he was a nice guy, but it was like, he just had like a real compulsive, like weird thing. Hmm. And, you know, so I just think people are, are really complex. And so mm -hmm. you throw a crime story in there too. Like, uh, you know, someone's having an affair and it's like, oh yeah, but we got to get rid of a husband or we got to get rid of this or we got to get rid of a wife or, you know, it's like, yeah, this is complicated you start throwing more. crime in. <laughs> And it's like the human desperation, like has like, you know, an extra compelling edge to it. I feel like, um, yeah, you know, that's why, that's why I just keep coming back over and over again. <laughs> Our I, next book I, is actually like about satanic panic. So <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> Going even darker, <laughs> all darker and more suburban, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, I was really drawn to this book because it, as a reader, it, I not only connected to like the, the, the different stages that these characters were at, but looking forward to the, the older characters, you can relate to them. And then all the, the stuff from the future made you like nostalgic for your own past. But it, it was wild to me how I felt nostalgic and care for like a place that I've never been or that even it doesn't even exist right yeah 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 and i, I thought it was great the, the real street that i was trying to base it on was actually torn down uh, they like bulldozed most of the houses on the streets and i i was i was doing google earth to try to find because i wanted to get like as close to some of it as i could and like to because sean lives in england he doesn't know what southern california feels like um, <laughs> yeah. and like google earth literally had like construction on, oh, on, the, oh, no. on the place, the actual place where the real house was, what, they were like in the midst of building like a huge condo complex on that whole corner. It's like on a hillside overlooking mm -hmm. uh, like uh, the freeway in San Diego. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was, I mean, that was the goal. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because it's like with everything I do, uh, I'm trying to find a way to sort of mix that that sense of of nostalgia that we all have for our own youth and you know i feel like comics is a really good tool for that because every time you read a comic there's some part of your subconscious that remembers every time you've ever opened a comic you know like the first time you crack it oh, it's yeah. like every time i open a comic i think about like when stacy's boot on the cover of an issue of spider-man you know it's, it's really her clone spoilers <laughs> full spoiler for <laughs> 45 years later, 45 years later spoilers. someone's mad about it <laughs> yeah someone just unsubscribed yeah someone's like i didn't know she was <laughs> i um, wasn't there yet right but it's like you know that's what i think is so great about like tactile art like that's why i love you know like print and and uh books and objects themselves and like movies i'm so glad like 
years ago, uh, right before the pandemic hit, I was about to go through all of and get rid of like all my Blu-rays and DVDs because I was like, oh, this stuff's all on streaming forever now. And I'm like, oh, God, thank God I was... <laughs> Thank God the pandemic came and I, and I was <laughs> to do that. <laughs> the only time that the pandemic is praised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All the Criterion Blu-rays cost twice as much now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not actually safe. So I love like the real tactile objects. I've been actually considering just not even doing like digital releases of our hardbacks until the paperbacks are out because it's like all the digital release does is encourage people to pirate it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, on some level, you're not really getting the full experience until you're holding the book in your hand. I feel like, but yeah, we, but, you we know, always like, talk about the thing. The you get not only do you get that experience, but you get like the experience of it's like every time you walk into a movie theater, you remember being a little kid the first time you walked into a movie theater. Even if you're not thinking about it, like some part of you. Yep, that's why you love going to the movie theater. Hell yeah! You know? And when you don't go for years and you go back, you have that sensation of oh my god, why haven't I been here? It's like. Same thing when you walk into like a cool used bookstore, you know. Oh, you the smell like, of old paper. Oh man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Just yeah, hates you. Smell that. <laughs> and you're just like, oh yeah, I remember being like 12 and mm -hmm. burying myself in this place trying to find every like Robert E. Howard I could. Oh yeah, <laughs> we, I used to ride my bike to one when I was a kid all the time, and like whenever I go to a bookstore, I'm just like, dang, wish yeah. I had my bike. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be yeah. all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Well, I on that note. I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't tell you that this is a very special interview for me because the first comic book I ever bought was Captain America 25, this second print. So, really? Yeah, it really was. How uh, old were you then? Andy was, Andy was a late bloomer. Yeah, I was, I was uh, what, a senior in high school? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so, crazy. Wow. Yeah, this is this that is was really your first comic this is that you ever bought. Yeah, the first one. Yeah. That that Holy issue. Shit. Yeah, that's he's made up for it with now. He's he's in debt and to you, comic books. Continue yeah. reading comics from that point. Yeah, or did you you got totally into comics after that? Just that? Did you follow that that comic from that point on? I did. Uh, oh, wow. I, I read every issue of Captain America that you did after oh, wow. that, and then I went back and got the previous, oh, you cool. know, twenty four issues. That's and amazing, man. It's been downhill since then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say. So you were the catalyst. Then. <laughs> yeah. This is all your fault, man. This is yeah, all your where do fault. we send the bill? <laughs> yeah, really. Where do you guys send the bill? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, that was that's that's so crazy because yeah, my first comic book was uh, Captain America. Like, I think it's issue like one fifty five or something like that, where the two Captain Americas are running at each other. Oh, like, cool. Yeah. The fifties, it's like a Sal Basima cover where their fists are like bigger than their heads. Yeah, <laughs> I remember seeing that like on the shelf at the PX in Gitmo when I was like four, and and like it was twenty cents, which <sighs> comics were not twenty cents then. It was like comics were still only twenty five cents, but the PX in Gitmo never returned anything, so you could find like comics that were years old on the shelf. Oh, sick! Brand new comics. Well, nothing was brand new either. You got stuff like six months after it came out sure like you know but you didn't care because you're a four-year-old kid you yeah think you don't know bruce lee's dead you think bruce lee's alive when you <laughs> and they're showing you enter the dragon you know they don't tell you by the way he's dead yeah. <laughs> not up here right. he's, yeah. he's, always, he's always alive up here exactly um i i did notice when we got the um the copy of the book to read that you guys have uh an an ai statement at the beginning 
of just like uh uh we found it interesting that it was just like you can, the images from this book if released digitally can't be used for ai prompts andy and i were yeah we don't yeah it was from it was from me and sean um we don't want our work used to train machines to make comics or books or write things or i i think it's horrifying that this is even happening in the world and i know 100 i know that the big studios and big companies are totally gonna just look at it exactly like they looked at computer lettering or Mm -hmm. you know any other technological innovation that makes it easier for artists to do their job like and i do know some people who are experimenting with it and stuff and and struggling with the is there an ethical way to use it and my answer is no probably yeah, not. no never <laughs> i don't think so it's not the same thing as like a robot that a robot arm that grabs a thing and moves it over here it's mm, literally yeah. just like micro plagiarism on this huge wide scale and yeah it, if the machine was actually just making stuff up but if you type in like Ed Brubaker comic book cover into Mid Journey. It comes up with something that looks like Sean Phillips painted. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, I thought it would come up with a picture of me. I'm like, oh, it doesn't have pictures of me. It doesn't care about me, but it knows Sean's (laughs) art. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's no, it's straight up. Yeah, it's and it's it's weirdly addictive for people. I've had some friends really fall into a hole where they like start doing that when they're like waiting in line at a thing instead of like texting or looking at you know Twitter or whatever. They're like just making weird pictures on mid journey and texting them to you. And I'm like, stop doing this to me. Yeah. Cause what you're doing <laughs> is helping it to look worse up. He's like, no, don't use it. Yeah. I'm Make like, it stupid. I really, yeah. I feel like it, 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 it's like a weird thing. A lot of things about the internet are like this. Like you, the first time you looked at Twitter, like every single person, the first time they looked at Twitter was like, well, this looks like a stupid thing. That would be a huge waste of time. Mm-hmm. And then 12 years later, they're like, Oh yeah, yeah this sucks. oh i shouldn't have but it's like they get they're all engineered to get us addicted to using them which then gives your brain the permission structure to think well these things are here and they're not going to go away and blah 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 and it's like yeah i mean you could i mean i don't want to make any awful comparisons but it's like the plans that these companies have for using this stuff is just that they don't want to have to pay the people to do it yeah it's nefarious it's because yeah. They don't want to pay people to do it. And they just kind of were like, well, it's not quite there yet. Anyway, we'll, we'll settle the strike. And in a couple of years, we'll just replace everyone with robots. I mean, that's my assumption. With no, I mean, Hollywood it's, is that they plan it's, to it's a dystopian view, but like, it's pretty accurate. I mean, they're giant corporations. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to pay as few people as humanly possible. And I mean, if they can get to a point where they can make something that looks like a Marvel movie with the amount of people it takes to make a Marvel comic, Mm -hmm. you know, and sure all those actors didn't actually do anything and nobody actually, you know, made those sets or, you know, like they'll do it, you know, like they're going to do it. Like, and, but like England's economy makes so much money off those Marvel and Disney movies. Like there's so many economies around the world. Yeah, billions of dollars off of movies and TV shows being made there, the and I feel like Georgia. they don't quite yeah. understand. Like, I'm less worried about it on a creative level. You know, maybe it's because I'm old and I've been doing this long enough, and people buy me and Sean's books because they're me and Sean's books, not because you know there's some great book or 
you know, or it's like some high concept idea that a robot. Well, they're synonymous at this point, actually. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, but I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out through on these streaming platforms that, you know, and I, I have a lot of friends that are screenwriters who get paid to just do rewrites of bad movies. And they're like, I might as well be rewriting a robot, you know, like some of the time. So <laughs> yeah. like, cause, and also like the studios sort of try to make you dumb stuff down so that it's appealing to the highest number of humans possible, as opposed to making something that's an individual good. So right. like, I feel like the, those of us who like things that are handcrafted and, and have like humanity in them will still want them. But, you know, there's a lot of people in middle management jobs and stuff that are just going to be replaced. Like, like, like Mm -hmm. people who work at like the law firm that my lawyer's at, like there's a lot of like lower rung jobs or even like technical jobs in art fields, like in betweeners at um, animation studios. Like, right. Yeah. So are animators only going to learn by to do keyframes now, and then all the in betweening will be done by robots? Like that makes sense on a production level, but then you aren't learning your actual job. Right, <laughs> you're, you're just you're learning how to tell a robot to do exactly. Exactly, it's really weird. Like I have friends who are like, "Look at this thing I made," and I'm like, "You didn't make anything." You just told yeah. it. You 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 said eleven words to a to a computer program, and it did it. And someone told you it's AI, so that's okay somehow. Yeah, you're literally fueling the machine that's going to take your job. Congratulations. That's like, saying, that's like you know, like when my text prompt wants me to not say shit and it keeps trying to say something else. I'm like, that's what the machine is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like the thing that's always that's always autocorrecting incorrectly. That's the same. It's the same <laughs> basic idea. It's like trying to anticipate what you want. I've what never in my life said "duck you." Creepy about those. They seem to learn you. Like I have a friend mm-hmm. who yeah. uses Journey uh, only for one reason. He uses it to try to recreate the images from his horrifying nightmares he has every night. Whoa! And he. Is the best I've ever seen at doing Mid Journey. None of his stuff looks like any artist you would ever imagine. They are the most horrifying images. He's a film director. He's like a horror <laughs> film director. They're the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life. They don't look like, but, but I was like, if I typed the same eight words into Mid Journey that he did to get that, it would come mm-hmm. up with something that looked like Mickey Mouse, like shooting himself in the head or something. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't look <laughs> Still like rad, but... a nightmare, but it's like the program has learned from him, which ones he likes and doesn't like. So right. now it's trying to like, and I'm like, God, I really hope that thing doesn't have any actual artificial intelligence. Cause you might be giving it the worst nightmares of all kind. He's training the Skynet. <laughs> this is why they hate us. Like, yeah. The whole plot of Westworld was like getting around all those people for 50 years made them just want to murder them all. <laughs> yeah. Which is like maybe the realest thing ever. Just, yeah. Like, exactly. Robots have had enough. They're like, you know what? We'll just fucking kill them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you guys want to talk about any of like the Marvel stuff or Hollywood stuff at all? Or what's, uh, what's your. I mean, I could sit here and tell you how great Captain America was all night. Or yeah. Iron Fist. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know. If, uh, we do you have three on. hours? Yeah. <laughs> you mean the I mean, Iron yeah, Fist? Whatever you want to talk about, we're here for it. Oh, sure. Uh, well, whatever you, whatever questions you guys have, I've got, I've got like another 10 minutes. You're the Captain so. America guy. Why don't you 
take it off. Sure. Uh, my burning question about Winter Soldier has always been, was was it your idea to bring Bucky back? Or was that somebody at Marvel that was like, hey, we we're kind of kicking around this idea or like, where did that come from? It was it was actually like a combination of things. Um, it started when I was like eight years old when I went to the Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con for the first time when it was at the El Cortez Hotel, like the last time, the last year that it was there. My dad took me and I was trying to find what I thought was issue 99 of Captain America because I had issue 100 and up. Yep. Which I was a little kid and it was pre-internet. I didn't know that there was no previous. I thought in issue 99, like came out in 1945 and Bucky got blown up. <laughs> oh, and no. So some, yeah. So some comic book dealer guy, like, and this is like the mid seventies or something. Mm-hmm. So some, some like hippie dude was like, no, dude, that was a retcon. Stan Lee <laughs> didn't want side, didn't want Captain America to have a sidekick, so they killed off Bucky in that when they brought him back in the Avengers. That's why he like wakes up and he's like, "Oh no, Bucky, no!" Right, and, and uh, you're like, "What the hell's a retcon?" Yeah, and I had read all these like tales of suspense stories with Captain mm-hmm. America and Bucky during World War II, so I just assumed those were reprints of like old comics from the forties. I didn't know. Because you know, I just knew because my dad told me that they actually published those comics during World War II. Yeah. I just sort of assumed like, oh, OK, well, I'm going to get I'm going to get the issue where Bucky dies, mm-hmm. you know, because I had the issue of Spider-Man. Well, not that I had a reprint of the issue of Spider-Man where Uncle Ben dies and I right. had the issue of Spider-Man where Gwen Stacy died. You know, I assumed if things happened in the comics, there were actual comics that they happened in. <laughs> and so at age eight, I discovered what a retcon was. Yeah. And I started plotting like. Someday I'm going to write Captain. I'm going to like, I was going to write and draw Captain America and I was going to bring Bucky back because Bucky was my favorite character because I was a military brat. He was a military brat. Like that was just the plan. So I started like mapping out different ways that Bucky could be alive. And every now, every couple of years when I was a kid, I would sit down and, and like noodle on a story. So it was like a thing I had always wanted to do. And mm-hmm. um, I was just finishing a contract at DC around the time that Bill Jemis left Marvel and Dan Buckley took over. And I got a call from Brian Bendis asking if there were any Marvel characters I was interested in. And, you know, because they were going to shake some stuff up. And I said, well, I would want to do Captain America, but they just hired someone. It's like, no, they just fired that guy. And Kirkman's going to do like a four issue fill in, like until the regular, you know, until the new regular person takes over. And I was like, oh. And I was like, well, I don't know if they'll do what I want to do because I have like this idea I've always wanted to do. I want to bring Bucky back. And he's like, no, no, no. We just had a huge summit and they had this huge fight because Axel or somebody wanted to bring, it was like, I can't remember who wanted to bring Bucky back. I think Joe and Axel were interested in doing it. Mm hmm. And um, and Tom Brevoort was dead set against it, like going to quit if they did it, et cetera. Like, wow. really, like it was a huge blowout. And and so basically they were like, no, they're interested in it, but they need the right pitch. So it was like kind of fortuitous thing. And I had to like get on the phone with Joe Casada the next day and sort of tell him the gist of, you know, what I was thinking. And he said, well, look, you know, if you can convince Tom Brevoort, you know, then you've got the job basically and how so, hard was that 
Tom had a bunch of questions about like, well, how could he still be young enough to, you know, he doesn't have super soldier serum. Like, how is he like the body, you know, so Tom gave me like this list of questions that I had to answer satisfactorily to him. And well, hilariously, they actually helped me flesh out like the parts of the pitch that I hadn't figured out was like, oh, okay, well, then, you know, they put him in suspended animation between jobs because after, you know, he saw Prince Namor in the Bowery one day, like before Johnny Storm found him. (laughs) (laughs) And he started having memories. And so they had to put him in stasis. So he's still like, he's 10 years older, you know, than he was when he got blown up. But then they started putting him in stasis all the time. And Tom was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) you know, but it it was really down to timing. I think, I think a lot of people wanted to bring Bucky back over the years. And I just happened to get there at the time when Marvel was crazy enough to do it. You know, it's like, there's people out there who are like, we got to bring Uncle Ben back, you know, like somebody always wants to, like, I was definitely like, that, that was one of my books as a kid, you know, like Spider-Man, Cap. Batman, you know, mm-hmm. Sergeant Fury, bizarrely, <laughs> Iron Fist. I was like, yeah, I think yeah. I was the only person I knew who liked Iron Fist as a kid until Power Man and Iron Fist came along. Then everybody liked Iron Did Fist. Did everybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but, but yeah, it was just it was just real luck on my part that I I got there at a time when they would kind of let me do that story, and then you know also luck that like. I had seen a couple covers that Steve Epting had done uh, for Marvel of Cap and some other Avengers. And I just, I knew his work from like the cross-gen stuff and the stuff he'd done before. And I just thought if I could get a guy like that to do like a kind of superhero espionage book that would feel really grounded and, and gritty, you know, but you believe the guy in the Captain America costume feels like a real human being, you know, like, if I could get him, then I felt like we had a real chance at, at doing like a real kind of serious, you know, somewhere in between like a John Le Carre and like a James Bond thing, but with superheroes mm-hmm. and supervillains. And that was, I, I feel like we achieved that. And oh, you know, yeah. I just got lucky that Epting hadn't signed on to another book yet. He was, he had just got to Marvel right around the same time and was doing just a couple little jobs, fill-ins and covers and just sort of getting his feet under him while he was like trying to get money out of cross gen or something like how like all those guys were like suing cross gen or something i remember <laughs> i just remember that like they all arrived at marvel in dc like Pissed. Broke and, you know, like ready to work and and like but working at cross gen had made them all like the best artists in comics <laughs> right because <laughs> they were all just sitting around each other watching each other draw and trying to one-up each other and so yeah Epping, to me Epping is just like you know always been one of the most amazing guys who's ever worked in that field he could have been like drawing like espionage like comic strips in the 50s or 60s or something with yeah. you know the best of them like alex roth or alex uh raymond yeah. um but yeah it was just uh it was it was a pretty good it was a dream job really like we got lucky the the book took off like sales wise and I had to do a few little things here and there for the crossover events, like a couple issues once for Civil War and one issue for one of the other ones that they were doing, um, which was cool because I got to work with Lee Weeks. Um, but for the most part, they just let us do our own book. And, you know, Epting is just not fast enough to do a monthly on his own. So there were some fill-in artists here and there. But, you know, I think for a Marvel run, like I was on the book for about eight years and 
mm-hmm. you know, Epting drew the vast majority of it and then came back to draw my final issue. Um, you know, and he and I are talking about doing a, a project together, actually. Cool. Novel. That's but, awesome. Yeah, I, I really want to work with them again. And there's a there's a couple of genres I still have done nothing in, and Steve would be perfect for for some of that stuff. But I don't want to spoil anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> can you can you spoil the genre you're thinking about? No, I don't even want to do that. Oh, <laughs> so secret, I give too much away. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Um, time. <laughs> <laughs> so now we just have to sit and wait for yeah. this special project project to show up hopefully yeah, yeah exactly basically so, like just like steve <laughs> uh um oh man i had it and lost it damn it I hate well i got another one do yeah you, go for it do you like working on uh tv movies more or comics more i mean i think the answer is maybe pretty obvious but it could be wrong yeah i um well it really depends comics is my favorite thing like in pretty much the whole world. Like I've been reading reading comics since before I could read, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but the amount of control and fun and the, uh, like, it's just me and Sean and, you know, and then Jake colors it like, you know, and it's like me and Marcos and Munza making Friday. It's like, it's very, um, different than anything in Hollywood. Like, like right now, I've been working on a movie and a TV show, both adapting uh, books of ours, like Criminal and Pulp. And, well, you know, that's looking, you know, I mean, we'll see if either of them actually get made. Um, they're they're both looking a lot, you know, more positive than any of the other stuff that, you know, I've worked on on our stuff, like as far as chances go. But, you know, it's it's a really frustrating field because there's no possibility that you could write the best issue of Batman that ever existed and everyone would be like, man, this is the most amazing script. God, I just wish we could publish it. You know, <laughs> but that's what happens in Hollywood. They're like, this yeah. script is amazing. I wish someone would make it. It's like, well, you're some make it. <laughs> you know? Hey. Like, like, <laughs> you're there that guy. I mean, yeah, it's like, am I a candid camera here? You have the, you can make this. Like, so there's a lot of, like, I, I've spent the last, like, 10 years sort of working on TV and film and pursuing, trying to get some of our stuff made as I learn how to do it. And, you know, it pays decently if you get to a level where you can, you know, be a showrunner or, you know, do, do a lot of pilots or movie rewrites, stuff like that. But creative satisfaction wise, nothing, you know, beats comics. I suppose maybe writing a novel might, have the same level of satisfaction. But I think at this point with novels too, like the publishing side of it, you know, there's a lot more, you know, like they want you to have sensitivity readers and stuff like that, which, you know, maybe it's fine for, for some people, but I'm really used to just, I write a thing and I give it to Sean and he, it's like, I certainly don't try to be unsensitive, but, but I, but I, but I feel weird about, I've talked to friends who, who wanted to do like graphic novels for like major book publishers and ended up doing them at like image or dark horse instead, because they were like, I didn't just, their whole system just felt foreign to me. Like I would have to like pitch an editor, my idea instead of just writing it, you know? Right. Yeah. For me, that would feel like a going backwards to where Mm -hmm. we, 
you know, have this <laughs> deal where we can just do whatever the fuck we want. Right. You're like, no, trust me, this is fucking yeah. great. So just make it. <laughs> yeah. But like Hollywood stuff, it's like, I'm at a point now where like I have this deal at Amazon and the executives I'm working with there are huge supporters of, of my stuff and have been, you know, people that I've worked with before who the kind of people who don't give you notes that ruin your thing, but give you notes that like one of the executives that I work with, this guy, Matt King, um, he's actually given me notes on this criminal project to make it more like what I want it to be and less, you know, like, like trying to, he's like, no, no, no. I think you're, you know, like take it more, make it more personal, make it more you make it more like what, you know, okay. make it more like what's great about the comic, you know? And so I was, that's, that's a really rare thing to have. So I'm like really optimistic about all the stuff that's, I'm doing with them. That's really heartening to hear. Cause you know, Obviously, when a company like that invests a significant dollar amount, they expect there to be a wide audience. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And anytime somebody says make it more personal, you're inherently like limiting your audience. But, I but, mean, I really, I really think that that's. I think right now, especially because there's a sense that um, things that go to wide audiences are becoming more and more homogenous, you know, mm -hmm. like this feeling that all of us who are the fans of the stuff are engaging with it less because we're feeling like we're getting the same thing over and over again. And right. the last time that happened in film was like the sixties and, you know, and then the, like the seventies era of film hit where everything was personal and weird, but also still commercial. Like you yeah. can have both, you know, that's the thing is like, if you like criminal and you want to make a TV show out of criminal, then you don't turn it into the fast and the furious. You find what's, you know, you're like, Oh, well, yeah. I mean, criminals sold millions of copies around the world. Like mm -hmm. we're published in like 25 languages or something at this point. Wow. So, like, yeah, we're bigger in France, I think, than we are in America. That's amazing. <laughs> but, that um, is so cool. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a commercial property. So it's like you, but, but if you take all the like stuff that makes it like personal and weird or, more unique out of it then you know then you don't end up with something you know that people act that won't be commercial because no one because it'll just be like everything else right yeah. like like all those shows on netflix that literally the name is just what the person's job is you know like, yeah <laughs> you know teenage bounty hunter money hunter, <laughs> you know vampire like, chef it's like, like okay and I'm, i don't i don't dislike these shows but their names are just like Gener it's like repo man where they just have like beer and food yeah know? yeah yeah like just generic white label <laughs> yeah. so it's like, but you know then you have something like taxi driver which is like this really personal thing but it makes a yeah. hundred million dollars you know right. and it's like that's the thing like look at barbie even barbie was like obviously like a much more like personal idiosyncratic weird fucking movie than Mm -hmm. Anything I thought would ever have the word Barbie. In front yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, think it's I, really, I, I actually, by the time I saw it, finally, I was like, I don't get what all the fuss was about. It was pretty good. But <laughs> like, I don't see why anyone was too upset or anyone was too excited. <laughs> well, in America, there's a small group of white men who get angry at a lot of things. And yeah. their voices are the loudest. I mean, I'm glad that the movie got made for a lot of reasons because i know all my friends who have like young girls that they took to see it were like mm -hmm. you know like their kids loved it and you know it was like i like the idea that like a bunch of five-year-old girls are learning the word patriarchy 
<laughs> Hell yeah. In case they didn't know it already. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, it's just funny to me, like when I, but that they made something like you could not say that anybody else could have made that movie than like Greta Gerwig. For I, sure. I, yeah. She's like the weirdest filmmaker. Like, and, and she made Little Women, which was mm -hmm. a very like straight commercial, you know, movie that she then added like a weird twist thing yeah. at the end to that too, which made it sort of more idiosyncratic. But like, she's a commercial filmmaker, you know, and that was a really odd, like, that was like an indie comic that got permission to use the word Barbie, you know, right. yeah. <laughs> like, like it's weird to me that that stuff happens, but you know, that's what I think you've got to find in like Hollywood and, and, you know, in TV and film, like you got to find these people who will let you like, let your freak flag fly in these things sometimes. Right. Because that's the stuff that we all end up really loving. You know, yeah. it's like the computers aren't going to make anything you love. And if it does, then, you know, it's I'm depressed for all of us, but, <laughs> but it's yeah, like, that says like, way more yeah. about us. Yeah, yeah. Like think of Stranger Things. Like what did they say when they were pitching Stranger Things? It was like one part Spielberg, one part Carpenter, and one part uh, something else. I can't remember what the third one was. It was like three different filmmakers that they were referencing. It's like the teenagers are in a Carpenter movie, the little kids are in a Spielberg movie, and the parents are in like a horror story or something. Yeah. Remember what it, I can't remember what the third one was, but it's like that's still like has more humanity in it than you know. But if you told a computer like three different right. directors to come up with an idea, you know, if you told the AI engine like we want something that feels like Spielberg, Carpenter, and you know Kubrick, mm -hmm. like you're not going to get anything that that really still you know you'll, you'll get something where you recognize bits and pieces of those people. Yeah. Right? You know, There's no heart. Like, they, they would just yeah, cut like up the movies and paste it together. Yeah, it's like oh, The Hobbit by Wes Anderson. Here's a trailer, and you're like, you watch five seconds of it, and you're like, yeah, this is stupid. Yeah, like who yeah, who wanted I'm this? Really <laughs> spent two days working on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why does Frodo have eight arms? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on with his feet? Yeah. <laughs> his eyes won't look at me. What is going on? I like there was one a friend sent me and I was looking at it and I realized that the fingers were hot dogs. <laughs> they, they weren't supposed to be, but they were. But they were. <laughs> they were clearly like frying hot dogs. <laughs> um, briefly, you mentioned uh, Friday, your yeah. comic about the uh, oh, yeah. the teen occultist uh, hunter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you have any updates for us on on that series or or, or any, yeah, any plans uh, with that? Yeah, I'm working on the final chapter of the first big story right now. Marcus is about like 10 or 15 pages into drawing it. It's going to be like a supersized final chapter because uh, I don't know how else to do chapters of Friday, apparently. Poor Marcus, yeah. it's like 48 pages a chapter or something. Yes. <laughs> the whole thing done will be close to 400 pages. Oh my God, that makes me yeah. so happy. Friday like has been just a delight to read. Yeah, it's I, I'm really, really excited about it. And uh, that's another one that like Hollywood has shown a lot of interest in. Um, though someone was like, oh, you might have to change the name because of Wednesday. And I was like, oh, Netflix will cancel that show by the time anything happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> They're going to make more than one other season of that. And then they'll just take a tax write off and bury it. Exactly. <laughs> that's the It'll Hollywood. Forever. No one will remember it existed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that that's very exciting to uh, to hear. I remember when that series first came out, and just it kind of just blew my mind of how you just flip the script on like the trope of like 
you know, a, a, a group of kids hunting down these these items and then like they go yeah. off to college. You're like, you expect this one narrative to happen. And you're just like, no, fuck that. We're doing something completely different. And it was yeah. so amazing. Yeah, that was one that I'd been thinking about for a long time. Like, I think I started coming up with what would end up being Friday, like in the mid nineties, like in a notebook when I I was going to, I was going to, before I broke into comics as a, as a writer, when I was just uh, writing and drawing my own comics and just barely scraping by in my twenties, I lived next to a library in Seattle and I went through this huge phase of just reading all these young adult books. Uh, from my childhood again, like rereading them all when I was like 25. And I remember a friend of me, a friend of mine, like thinking I was, that it was really weird that I came home with like eight great brain books and a bunch of Judy Blams. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> you know, like they're books. This is normal. <laughs> Just let me relive a thing, okay? Yeah. They're young readers. <laughs> they're middle grade. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Um, I I started like I had this idea like oh maybe I can make a living doing that like I'll write young adult fiction and then I'll and I'll work on my comics on the weekends or something and and uh, that never came to pass but that was you know I think I got I got hired for like a job at Vertigo like during that same time and then started getting paid to write comics and kind of followed that path but Marcos emailed me one day asking if I had any ideas for something for him to draw. And I was like, oh, no, I don't really. And I don't really have time to do anything. And then the second I sent the email, I was like, oh, wait. And then suddenly, like, I had this huge rush of ideas. And I thought, oh, Marco's doing some kind of New England winter horror thing. Mm-hmm. Like, just trying to think of something that would be really neat for him to draw. And, you know, he's one of my favorite cartoonists ever. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd worked with him on Cap. We did, like, he, he and I and um, Javier Polito did uh, a, an annual where they I had lost the artist who was going to draw it like right before the deadline and so they jumped in and drew like they'd split the duties drawing the whole thing over the course of like three weeks or something crazy damn um, and we got it out on time and that was the only time I'd gotten to work with them so I was really excited about the idea of doing like a longer project with them and of course when I when we started I thought it would be like five or six chapters and then the first chapter <laughs> came in I thought I would, the first three chapters were what I envisioned as the first chapter, which would be, mm-hmm. which I thought would be 30 pages. So I don't know what happened because it was 120 <laughs> pages. <laughs> so, like, initially, Lance was going to be found dead at the end of chapter one. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, once we realized how, how big it was, I started to feel sorry for Marcus, but like Marcus <laughs> just said he didn't want to work on a project with a deadline. He just wanted, he didn't ever want to rush through any of the art. He he right. He feel he felt like a lot of times when he'd look back at jobs, he'd always like notice a panel here or there where where he wished he'd spent you know another day drawing. And you know he's yeah. he's a total perfectionist. Uh, you know I think of him as kind of like Dave Stevens or something. Like I did the Rocky. Oh, okay, Peter, yeah. But like more more cartoony and you know weirder influences. But the, yeah, I love working. the atmosphere of Friday is so like Maine, Delaware, but like that area, yeah. you just like feel the cold in the air. It, it's, it, it, as you know, it's a beautiful book. Yeah. Like just, he crushed it in every way possible. It's hilarious to me that it's, it's so obviously, I mean, from, and what I was thinking of was the great brain crossed with like Edward Gorey and Lovecraft, mm-hmm. but yeah. like 
I named the place Kings Hill, and it's like I'm I'm friends with Joe Hill, who's yeah, yeah. Son. But I wasn't even thinking about it. It wasn't until I was sending Joe the first chapter that I realized, oh, I'd subconsciously named the town after you and your dad. Yep. Which is like, if you're going to do New England horror, like at least acknowledge the King family. But oh yeah, yeah, I was like, what the fuck? Like that didn't even occur to me. <laughs> and then I told Marcos, I was like, this is kind of funny because it basically is like our our like Castle Rock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I was really thinking of like I loved these Edward Gorey books in the seventies and like eighties, the um the ones that John Bell Ayers did about all these weird little kids in New England who always had like a there was one the house with the clock in its walls that they made a movie of like ten years mm-hmm. ago with Jack Black. Who's yep. not the right person for that role. Um but, <laughs> but he answered the phone. Black, but it was that that yeah, I don't know. That I love that book so much. I, I really wanted someone to to make a series out of that or like a series of books or, or a series mm-hmm. of TV show or movies or something. But um, it was funny. Like I found, I found some interview with Edward Gorey because I, I always assumed that he did all the illustrations and covers for all these John Bell Ayers books. So I assumed that he liked the books, but it turned out he didn't even like the books. It was just a job. <laughs> Books were really tasty. That's a sign of a true master. He was like, "I'm stealing paycheck." It's weird though because it's like he loved the he didn't like the books as much as I did, but but uh, like Edward Gorey did all this stuff where kids are getting murdered left and right, all those like Gashley Crumb tinies and stuff. Yeah, and you know, and like these are totally just right up his alley. It's always there was about like a little kid who discovers this monster has come to town or this guy who lives down the street is a warlock and he's got this mm-hmm. figurine that's going to destroy the moon or, you know, and it's like, he's like, pedantic. like that. It just seemed like the, the perfect Edward Gorey kind of thing. I was like, that's weird to me that he didn't dig it, but whatever artists, <laughs> what are you going to do? But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, the guy who wrote the books like died young. He was only like in his forties. And so they stopped coming out in like, I think the, the early eighties and, I think yeah. some other writer has picked up the series after they made the movies. Um, but yeah, it, it was just, that was what I was thinking about. And, uh, and I literally was just looking at the names of places in new England when I came up with King's Hill, cause it just sounded like a kind of place that somebody in like, sounded someplace like a lighthouse probably. Yeah. Like colonial times. Like someone's like, this is the King's Hill, you know, yeah. like, this place <laughs> overlooking the water is the King's Hill. And that's how places yeah. get like I was doing all this research for the project that uh, that I set aside uh, or really just threw away um, when I started the Reckless books. I was about to do uh, a, a series. Sean and I were going to actually do. <laughs> this is hilarious to me now, looking back three years later. I had, for some reason, this weird thought that we could do a series that was somewhere in between like uh, an like a seventies espionage book, but also like a fantasy thing with like wizards oh. and elves and shit like that. And I don't know what I was thinking. And I was, I was like working on the notebook and it just, I was like a couple pages in and I'd been doing all this research into all these places that used to be on maps. Cause I I'm fascinated by places that don't exist that were on maps, like Whoa, these, cool. these sort of mythical places that people used to think existed that uh-huh. now we think of as like parts of fairy tales and stuff, but you know, you can find them on maps. And I thought, Oh, what if there was a world where these were all real and, you know, but that's like a JK Rowling idea or a Neil Gaiman idea, <laughs> not an Ed Brubaker idea. And I was like, 
getting into it a little bit and I was like, this just doesn't feel right. And then Sean sent over all the art for the Parker story that we were doing as a tribute to Darwin Cook. Mm-hmm. And I read that and I just immediately was like, nope, I threw the notebook out and I just started <laughs> filling up the reckless notebook. And I was like, nope, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a pulp thing. And, you know, we're going to do like a, like a series of graphic novels about this one guy, like a pulp character, like Parker, or, you know, but like a good guy who's like Parker, you know, who solves crimes instead of commits them. <laughs> Man, what could have been? Well, I'll steal yeah, that. I, don't, I mean, I don't think anyone's missing a Brubaker and Phillips fantasy book. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you say that now, but when people hear this, they're going to be clamoring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're like, man, wouldn't ElfQuest have been great if they were just stealing stuff all the time? <laughs> That's what ElfQuest needed, guns. Yeah. <laughs> and a drug problem. Yeah. Skywise, hit the gas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, any, any more questions? I think that's it. Well, all right. Ed, I think we've taken enough of your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, you all right. Well, by, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, uh, where the body was in December, mid-December uh, is when the issue comes out in comic book shops, and then later in January you can get it digitally. Is that right? Uh, it's coming out in bookstores and and I guess digital in January probably. Yeah, and but it's coming out in hardback book in your comic stores the second Wednesday of uh, December or maybe Tuesday. I don't know when Lunar uh, lets people sell. Uh, Lunar's still Tuesdays, Wednesday, sure. I think. Yeah. Break street dates, retailers. I don't care. <laughs> you heard it bro- here. <laughs> Break the rules, Ed Brubaker. It's twenty five dollars. Perfect Christmas present for your for your parents who think you're weird for liking comics. <laughs> yep, that's how we hook them. That's how we hook the parents with these books now. Yeah, I realized like the first Comic Con I did uh, when I was like a professional, Michael Lark and I had just had like a collection of Scene of the Crime come out, and people were coming up to get me to sign it for their dad. And I was like, Whoa. Oh, I'm the guy who does dad books, <laughs> or, or like, and when I was doing Catwoman, these guys would come up. And they'd be like, hey, can you sign this for my girlfriend? She doesn't like that I read comics, but she likes Catwoman. And I was like, oh, so I'm the guy who does the stuff for the comic the comic reader's <laughs> girlfriend. And this was at a point where, you know, that wasn't a huge audience. Now it's like more than half the audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you go to Comic-Con and it's like 60% women. But, you, you know. You kicked the door open. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, I kicked it. Yeah, I did it. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. No, I think it was I think it was anime and cosplay, but because uh, cosplay I, for I grew up as a kid going to Comic Con, the only people in cosplay were paid models who definitely did not read comics. Sure, and definitely, and definitely were did not interested in talking about comics. Because no. <laughs> I watched a lot of I watched a lot of like professional comic book people trying to talk to like women dressed up like Phoenix and stuff. So in the, in the and they're like that's enough. So, yeah, that was a fun thing to eavesdrop on. <laughs> okay uh watch, and watch your again. get shot down <laughs> yeah phoenix turned me down again <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh well uh, ed uh, again thank you for coming on um yeah uh, if you ever want to come back on the show you're always welcome just ring our line and we'll answer and um it, do you have anything else you want to share any social medias or uh, no, I don't have any. I just have a newsletter. You can, uh, if you go to my bio page at Image, there's like a link to sign up for my newsletter. But I, I try to stay off uh, the internet and uh, away from my phone as much as humanly possible now. I'm just 
trying to live a bit of an analog life because too much of my day is spent in front of a computer. And now half of that is like on Zooms about meetings, about things. And it's like, I need that brain free time to think about writing and get up in the morning and spend some time with a notebook, like a real human. (laughs) Well, thank you for being in another meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. First Issue Club is edited and produced by Mike DeStacy, Greg Lichtig, and Andy Vargas. Follow us on social media at First Issue Club and check out our Patreon for videos, audio, and more at patreon.com slash first issue club.